0: At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. For many years, many have asked the question, what if God was one of us? Through the incarnation of Jesus, God answered that question, and Jesus became one of us. Every year for centuries, Christians have celebrated the miracle of Jesus' birth. This Christmas season, we're diving into a new series, Emmanuel, God with us. Learning how the arrival of Jesus Christ changes everything. He came to save us, a broken and crooked world, a fallen people. Join us this Christmas as we explore the miracle of Jesus' incarnation and the impact it still has on us. It's good to be
1: with you. I want to ask for your grace. I'm feeling a little under the weather, so bear with me this morning. But I'd like to begin with prayer, so pray with me, please. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful that you have gathered us here together today. God, we're grateful that in Christ and through his life, you have made us a family. And God, I realize that in this season, there are many things probably on our minds that might keep us from being present here today. Things left to do. Places yet still to go. And so, God, would you help us to lay our minds and our hearts at your feet this morning? And would you have your way in them? Continue, God, the work that you began in us. May your will be accomplished in each of our hearts and each of our minds. Oh, Father, help us to see unmistakably that we have every reason to rejoice in the coming of Jesus. He brought us back from the exile of our sin. He took away the dark shadow that sin held over our future, and he brought freedom to our present. Yes, Father, the King of kings has come, just as you have promised He would. Yes, Lord, these things are enough to bring a smile to our faces and joy to our hearts, and then to sing from that joy That Emmanuel has come in the extraordinary name of Jesus. I pray, Amen, Amen. I have a great story to start today, but I'm going to warn you—it's not a Christmas story. It's a story about a frog, and no, there's no princess in this story. There's no kiss at the end that turns the frog into a prince. The frog's name isn't even Kermit. Now, this frog was stuck in Minnesota, and he needed to find a way south for the winter. And nearby, there were two geese that were getting it ready to go south themselves. And so the frog asked, because you know frogs can talk, "Will you take me with you?" At first, the geese refused; they just couldn't see how it could work. But the frog—he was a clever one—he had a plan. He convinced each goose to hold the ends of a short stick in their beaks, and then he would hold the middle with his mouth. So the unlikely threesome took off, and sure enough, the plan worked. And during their flight south, they traveled over the skies of Indiana, and a farmer looked up in the sky, astonished at what he was seeing. He said loudly, I wonder which one of them came up with this idea. And then all puffed up, the frog yelled, I did. Then he fell to the earth. Pride comes before the fall, or so they say. That's not really just some saying that humanity has come up with. That's straight out of the Bible. That's biblical truth. Proverbs 16, 18 says, Pride goes before destruction, and a haughty spirit before a fall. One theologian said it like this: Pride is the ground in which all other sins grow, and the parent from which all other sins come. It's pretty powerful. Well, you and I might agree that pride is the most common characteristic in human beings. Humility seems to be the most elusive, doesn't it? When we think we're humble, we're not. When we claim to be the most humble, we're not. Humility seems to be just something slippery in our hand we can't quite get a hold of. And yet the Bible tells us that humility is absolutely essential. Essential in both being a disciple, but also essential in making disciples. It's a necessary ingredient. It's got to be there. It's not negotiable for any of us. And while we humans have seemed to corner the market on pride, there is one, Is the perfect embodiment of humility, the perfect human embodiment of humility. His name is Jesus. And today marks our third week in our Emmanuel series. And we're going to look upon the inspired words from the person who wrote the most books in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul. And it was by Paul that Spirit provided one of the most jaw dropping, knee buckling collections of words that describe the humility of Jesus in his letter to the Philippians. Philippians is a letter with a really upbeat tone, a tone of thanksgiving, if you will. And Paul wrote Philippians from jail. That should give us pause today as we begin our time. The Apostle Paul is in jail, and he writes words of inspiration, words of thanksgiving. See, Paul is thankful for the Philippians' partnership in the gospel, and he writes an inspiring message of joy, despite his own personal circumstances. And see, the basis for this joy for Paul is Jesus, in particular, the unity that the good news of the gospel brings despite those very hard circumstances that Paul is facing, but also the Philippians have faced, he encourages them to pattern their thinking after Jesus. At one point in the letter, he says, be of one mind. We're going to look at that today. Simply put, Paul says that the incarnation of Jesus, the Son of God, putting on flesh and dwelling amongst us, is the perfect embodiment of humility. Perfect embodiment. And so setting our minds on that truth, training our minds to think like Jesus is how you and I can embody that same humility that Jesus had. And it's how we live as true disciples. But like in other series, this text is likely going to be familiar for you. And so like Pastor Rob, I'm going to ask you to set aside what you think you know. Set aside what you think you understand about this text. Let God have his way in your heart and in your mind this morning. So open your Bibles with me to Philippians chapter 2. will be in verses 3 through 8. If you do not have a Bible, you can follow along on the screen behind me. But also at the table corners of our worship center, we have Bibles there for you to take if you do not own one. Please, you need God's word in your life. So please take one if you don't have a Bible. But Philippians chapter 2, starting in verse 3. being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Church, the words that Paul writes here are astonishing. They're absolutely stunning. They capture the very thing that we cannot see about Jesus, Namely, his mindset. But that mindset is what gives rise to the things that you and I can see about Jesus as we look over the Gospels. Namely, his character as he put on flesh and became the one who would execute God's plan of redemption. So the aim for us, the aim for you, the aim for me every day of our lives as believers is to follow Jesus' humble example. That's the plan and purpose for your life. There might be nuance to it, but that's it, to follow Jesus' humble example. The question is how? How do you, how do I pursue humility like Jesus? I want to answer that question by pulling out three three things, three ways that this text describes the humility that Jesus embodied. Look back at verses 3 and 4. Paul writes, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. So that first way that we embody the humility of Jesus is we consider our position. Consider your position. See, earlier in this letter, Paul, he encouraged his readers to live as citizens in God's kingdom. And as we move into chapter 2, Paul now is describing that citizenship as a life shared in Christ. You and I share in the life of Christ as believers. And here in verses 3 and 4, Paul is actually now unpacking with more vivid detail what that shared life looks like. And he starts with a focus on how a believer positions himself or herself among others. See, Paul is calling God's people to a unity that's based on the character Jesus had while he lived on earth. And if you're a disciple of Jesus, then your ambition should not be spent exclusively on you. Newsflash, you are not the top priority of your life. Notice I didn't say you're irrelevant. We need to be clear on what true humility looks like. The world thinks humility is weakness, right? It thinks humility is not worth the time and effort because it disregards my personal uniqueness, my personal value. But that's a lie of the enemy. Always has been. Biblical humility, the kind of humility that Jesus embodied is based on frequency, not value. Frequency, not value. Let me say it this way. True biblical humility is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. Again, frequency, not value. See, what Paul is doing here in verses 3 and 4 is he's contrasting putting yourself in a position of priority with putting yourself in a position of service. but I want to unpack it a little more because you and I, we read the words selfish ambition and conceit, and I'm confident we know what those mean. But there's a depth to the original language here that Paul writes in that might be lost on us simply because this text is so familiar. So by selfish ambition, what does Paul mean? He's calling out a hard attitude, that only looks for how a situation benefits me and nothing beyond that. You and I can admit that some ambition can be a good thing in a career, raising your children. But Paul's talking about an ambition that's blind to every other life around you. An ambition even that's hostile to others. An ambition that would say other people are just a waste of my time. I can see Paul is calling out a hard attitude that has an exaggerated opinion of oneself. That might be the most concise phrase that aptly describes our culture right now. Right? We think too highly of ourselves. We value our own thoughts more than we realize our righteousness is overestimated. Our sinfulness is underestimated. So how do you see yourself? Wait, maybe we shouldn't ask ourselves that question. See, Paul is putting a picture of what walking in the flesh looks like right up against what walking in the Spirit looks like. Look at it again. Paul says, instead of looking exclusively at yourself, walking in the flesh, he says, look also to the interests of others, walking in the Spirit. Spend some effort to consider other people's needs. Spend some time to get to know people in the body of Christ that you know their needs so that you can serve them. This is what Paul's getting at. But it's harder than we think. I'll just share with you a typical day in my life. I, mean, I, I get up, I get ready for the day, I shower, I brush my teeth, I get something to eat, I get dressed, I go to work. All that might strike you as silly, but my point is is that much of our concern in, in our daily life is about ourselves, from the most mundane thing to the most important thing, and the question is, is the entire focus of my day limited to the six inches that surrounds me? Is that your focus as well? Now take a moment to consider the position that Jesus took. The one who should have had all the attention. The one who should have had all the adoration over all the world. The one who demands to be worshipped and should be worshipped. He put his attention and adoration on us. So how have you positioned yourself in life? Of focus on yourself. See, to do that would be to walk in the humility that Jesus embodied. So consider your position in life, but also consider your mindset. Consider your mindset. Look back at verse 5. Paul continues, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. So after Paul contrasts a a position of priority with a position of service, he immediately makes a command. He says, have this mind which is yours in Christ Jesus. Then he describes it in verses 6 through 8. But don't miss that Paul's commanding believers. If you profess faith in Christ, he's commanding you to have a certain mindset. Your thinking matters tremendously for your life of faith. So important how you think. And I want you to listen to how Dallas Willard describes our thinking in his book, Renovation of the Heart. He says this Thoughts are one of the most basic sources of our life. They determine the orientation of everything we do, evoke the feelings that frame our world and motivate our actions. God's given us a beautiful gift and a Minds that can learn and grow and can stretch in thinking and capacity. Minds that can and do shape our decision-making. The human mind is a beautiful gift from God. But there's a problem with it. Us. (laughs) Sin often clouds our thinking. It often twists our thinking. It often makes our thinking self-focused. And our thinking patterns are more influenced by a selfish heart than I think we we realize. But again, Dallas Willard is on point here when he says this. As we first turned away from God in our thoughts, so it is in our thoughts that the first movements toward the renovation of the heart occur. You're thinking This isn't Dallas Willard discovering this. This is from the Bible, from our own Paul here. Romans 12, 2, you know this verse. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. That by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. But also later on as Paul concludes this very same letter. Philippians chapter 4, verse 8. Finally, brothers, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if, if, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Oh, believer, how you think matters tremendously. So how do we have this mindset of Jesus? Well, it's easier than we might think. Ask yourself a very basic question. Are my thoughts focused on me or we? But in practice, that may be harder than we think. Because our country is built on a rugged individualism. Name it, claim it, go out and get it. Self-interest is encouraged, self-fulfillment is applauded, and self-discovery is worshipped in our culture. We are the center of everything. But all of that is completely contrary to the mind of your Savior. Let me shatter all of that with one simple yet powerful truth. Jesus lived his life for our sake. at Christmas we come to the truth that Jesus, he started his mission in the most humblest way. He came as a precious, vulnerable baby, an infant. He literally put his life in the hands of another so that one day he might put the lives of all on his shoulders. That's the truth we celebrate each and every Christmas. See, how we position ourselves in relation to others, our mindset, both of those reveal how deeply the gospel has penetrated our hearts. If we walk by the flesh, it's going to be obvious. And if we walk by the Spirit, it will be obvious. Finally, to pursue the humility of Christ, we need to consider our example. We need to consider our example. Look back at verses 6 through 8. Paul writes, who? He's talking about Jesus now. Though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God, a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even as on a cross." There it is. You and I just read the most astonishing collection of words that describe the humility of Jesus, your Savior. More than enough to marvel at for a lifetime. But I want us to get our heads around what Paul is saying through all of this. So let's put it all together. Paul said, do not do anything from an over-realized, over-exaggerated perspective about yourself. Yes, look to your own interests, but not in a way that you exclude or you downgrade the needs of others. Then he says, have the same mindset as Jesus, which is possible because you are personally connected to him by faith. He abides in you. And then he describes this mindset, and oh, it is amazing. Paul says that Jesus was God when he came to this earth in the incarnation. That's what he means when he says he was in the form of God. But the point Paul is making here is that Jesus didn't exploit his identity as God. He didn't take advantage of it. See, the one who could have, but didn't. The one who had the right to, but didn't. Jesus didn't use his status as God to his own personal advantage. Instead, he emptied himself and took the form of a servant. Now, there's a lot of debate here about the meaning of that phrase, he emptied himself. Other translations say he made himself nothing, which probably is more helpful. But some have taken it to mean that Jesus emptied himself of some of his divine attributes, as if he was less God while others have taken it to mean that Jesus subordinated himself, or humbled himself, to the Father. The context requires that we conclude the latter of those two. Namely, that Jesus humbled himself to the Father's will. You might ask why. Well, because Paul, he's making a contrast here because with, God, Jesus was in the form of God, and now he took on the form of a servant, which he links With that phrase, emptied himself, or made himself nothing. So the plain meaning here is that Jesus emptied himself of the prerogative of being God, of the privilege of being God. But he was no less God while he lived on earth. The same apostle, he writes in his letter uh, Colossians in verses one, chapter one, verse fifteen and nineteen. He says, he's talking about Jesus here. He is the image of the invisible God. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. See, in the incarnation, Jesus didn't become something other than God, he added humanity to his divinity. Took this humbling act of putting on flesh even further. Paul writes that Jesus obeyed the Father to the point of death in a personally excruciating and humiliating way. And he did it for our sake. But this also was no secret. Jesus said this about himself in Mark 10, 45, ironically a context where the disciples are talking about greatness again. Jesus says, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. As we set our eyes on the horizon of Christmas, I want to challenge us to see three words from this text as we all desire and seek to apply these words to our lives. The first word is empty. Following Jesus in humility means I must empty me of me. Empty myself of my own pride and my own self-importance. And so just to help us all with that, what are you willing to be emptied of so that Jesus is glorified? Second word is serve. It should surprise no disciple of Jesus that we are most like him when we are serving others. As his disciples, our lives are not our own. And so, who can you faithfully serve even if they cannot repay you? The third word is obey. At the ultimate personal cost, Jesus humbly obeyed the Father's will to become the very instrument of our redemption. Will you humbly obey the Father's will despite the personal cost that may come, that will come? As you celebrate Christmas, I encourage you to sit in silence at the manger and consider the position that your Lord took. Consider the mindset that would do such a humble thing for your sake. Come and worship the one who is called Emmanuel.
0: Thank you for joining us as we study God's Word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to Woodsidebible.org/slash connect to introduce yourself today.